Well, good morning on this third Sunday in the season of Lent. And um, um, tagging on the, um, the announcements, this is also the uh, last Sunday we'll be taking that special offering for Ukraine, and you can do that in any of the ways that Amy mentioned um, as well, that we'll be going um, to World Renew, which is one of our ministry partners that is specifically working with um, Ukrainian refugees in Poland, um, as well as some of the other thr- surrounding European nations. Um, well, good morning. Um, you know, everyone loves a rags-to-riches story, um, whether it's the Disney classics Cinderella or Aladdin um, or Rocky, any of the five Rocky films, I guess, um, from My Fair Lady to Les Miserables, um, from the 1960s sitcom The Beverly Hillbillies. Anybody remember that? to the Netflix original, The Queen's Gambit, two years ago. We love stories where someone starts at the bottom and works their way to the top. Well, we're in a series right now on the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis that we're calling What God Intends for Good. And over the last two weeks of this series, we've seen how Joseph went from the top to the bottom And today we're going to see Joseph's great reversal as he goes from the bottom to the top, from rags to riches. But Joseph's story is more than another rags to riches kind of story. Joseph's story is really not so much about Joseph as much as it's about God and what God does. So today in Genesis chapter 41, we're going to look at Joseph's great reversal, and we're going to find some lessons, four lessons that Joseph learned from that reversal that is, are just as relevant for our lives today. And so I'm going to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word from Genesis 41, beginning in verse 1. Verse 1 begins with, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. And then if we skip down to verse 8, after the description of the dream, in the morning, Pharaoh's mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had its own meaning. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. You can be seated. Genesis 41 begins with dreams. Not the first time in Joseph's story. We saw dreams in chapter 37, Joseph's dreams. We saw the dream of the chief cupbearer and the baker in chapter 40. And now Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has two dreams. The first is a dream of seven healthy cows. I thought of the happy cows from the um, uh, commercial that 
are then devoured by seven skinny, scrawny cows. The second dream is of seven healthy heads of grain that are swallowed by seven scorched and unhealthy heads of grain. These dreams trouble Pharaoh. Now, if you're a pharaoh or a king, everyone around you tries to insulate you from negative ideas and bad news. In the ancient world, a king's court is the epitome of an echo chamber. See, anyone who brings a king or a pharaoh bad news or a negative idea risks the king's wrath. We all know what they say about shooting the messenger. So everyone tells the king what the king wants to hear, assuring him that he's awesome, he's doing a great job, everything is going to be just fine. But with these two dreams, God breaks through Pharaoh's echo chamber. And Pharaoh is deeply troubled as these dreams hang over He calls for his trusted advisors, sorcerers, and wise men to explain what the dreams might mean. But their explanations are unsatisfactory, and these dreams hang over Pharaoh like a dark cloud. And that's when the cupbearer, in God's providence, remembers Joseph. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph, who's still in that prison two years later. Two years have gone by since Joseph has interpreted the cupbearer's dream and the baker's dream. Joseph, whose circle of influence is small now, will, will now stand before the most powerful person in the ancient world, the Egyptian Pharaoh himself, the man whose circle of influence is larger than anyone else. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams for him. I encourage you to read these verses on your own. You'll see that Joseph is very careful to distance himself from the sorcerers and the other dream interpreters. In verse 25 and again in verse 28, Joseph tells Pharaoh that God is the one who has given Pharaoh these dreams in order to reveal to the king what is about to happen. Joseph consistently points to God in his interpretation rather than himself in his interaction with Pharaoh. He says that the two dreams have the same meaning. Seven years of great prosperity are coming for the nation of Egypt, but that prosperity will be followed by seven years of horrible famine. Now, back then, every year the Egyptians relied upon rainfall in what we now know of as South Sudan, to flood the Nile River, to overflow the banks, to irrigate all of their crops. In fact, the ancient Egyptians built an elaborate irrigation system to fully benefit from this annual flooding of the Nile River when it rained. This provided Egypt with a consistent food source that made them the most powerful empire at that time. Now, if it didn't rain much one year, the crops would suffer that year, but this was usually balanced out by rainfall the next year. But if Egypt ever went through a multi-year drought, we know all about those here in California, 
That would create an agricultural disaster of epic proportions that could take down the entire Egyptian nation. Joseph has given Pharaoh terrible news. And as powerful as the Pharaoh is, there's nothing he can do about it. He can't control the rainfall. His circle of influence, large as it is, only goes so far. So Joseph suggests a plan. He suggests that Pharaoh put a wise and capable person in charge of the crops for the next seven years of abundance in order to store up sizable reserves to prepare for the famine. Joseph's plan requires that the Egyptians ration their food during their years of abundance so they don't starve to death during their years of famine. And now let's pick up our reading of the text in verse 39. We won't stand again, but. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed Joseph in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before Joseph, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Joseph said to Egypt, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephenath Paneah and gave him Azanath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be Joseph's wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. This is Joseph's great reversal. The most powerful man in the ancient world appoints Joseph, an imprisoned Hebrew slave, to be his second in command, his chief operating officer of the nation. Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers sold him into slavery into Egypt. And now at the age of 30, he enters the service of the Egyptian Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, an Egyptian name, the name Zephenath Paneah. I had to practice saying that name a couple of times before today. Pharaoh gives Joseph a wife to marry, an Egyptian woman named Azanoth, which the, the name Azanoth in Egyptian means she belongs to the goddess Noth. Azanoth is the daughter of an Egyptian pagan religious leader, a priest from the Egyptian city of On. Pharaoh confers upon Joseph a fully Egyptian identity. And this is Joseph's great reversal. As he rides his chariot throughout the land of Egypt, his circle of influence larger than it has ever been before in his life. And this is followed by seven years of abundance. And during that abundance, Joseph rations the grain and stores it, stores so much they lose track of how much they have. 
And Joseph and his wife, Azanath, have two sons during the abundance. And instead of giving his two sons Egyptian names, Joseph gives his son Hebrew names. The firstborn, Manasseh. The secondborn, Ephraim. And then comes the famine. The worst Egypt has ever faced. But because of Joseph's plan, Egypt has food. And all the peoples of the surrounding nations around Egypt begin traveling to Egypt to buy food so they don't starve to death as well. And Joseph is in charge of everything. Now, applying a story like this to our lives can be a little tricky. Because here's how we're tempted to apply this story. God did it for Joseph and he'll do it for me. Because God exalted Joseph after Joseph was at the bottom and, jo and God put him on the top. I can stand on the promise that God will exalt us to the top as well. But the problem with that approach to applying this story is that not everyone experiences a reversal like Joseph did. You see, the stories we read in the Bible, like Joseph's, are not universal promises. Just because we read of God doing something in a particular person's life, that doesn't mean that God is making a promise to everyone else in his people that he will do the same for them. David's defeat of Goliath does not promise that every underdog will prevail. Abraham and Sarah's child born in their older years after years of infertility is not a promise that God will give every infertile couple a child. Paul and Silas's release from prison after an earthquake is not a promise that God will miraculously release every Christian who is in prison for their Christian faith. This is a basic principle for interpreting the Bible. Stories are not promises. And if we say that we, they are, we risk harming people. Because if I don't defeat the Goliath in my life, and I think the story of David and Goliath is a universal promise, I must not have enough faith. Or if God doesn't give a child to an infertile couple like he gave Abraham and Sarah, and if that's a promise, there must be something wrong with them. And if God doesn't free a Christian who has been imprisoned for their Christian faith, it must be because they have some hidden sin in their lives that Paul and Silas did not have. We hurt people who are already hurting when we misapply stories and turn them into promises. So how do we apply a story like Joseph's great reversal? Well, the story of Joseph may not be a universal promise, but there is a promise in the Bible about another kind of great reversal. And this promise is a promise for all of God's people. And it's stated several times in the Bible. And I, I just want to look at one example of this universal promise from the New Testament, from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 27. When the disciples of Jesus heard this, excuse me, verse 27, Peter answered Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? 
And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Jesus is saying that there will be a great reversal one day. But unlike Joseph's great reversal, this great reversal that is promised to all of God's people everywhere will not happen in this life. The reversal Jesus promises will take place at what he calls the renewal of all things when, when Jesus comes again at the end of the age. It will happen when Jesus, the Son of Man, is enthroned as creation's king, when the kingdom of God is consummated on heaven um, on earth as it already is in heaven. And in verse 28 of our reading, um, the 12 apostles are told they'll have a special role. But then in verse 29 of what I read, Jesus says that every Christian, every follower of Jesus who has paid a price for following Jesus in this life will receive 100 times that in the next in other words, the call to follow Jesus in this world is costly, yes. But the blessings that will follow in the next life are way out of proportion with the cost. Jesus says 100 to 1. And because of this promised reversal, Many who are first in this life, those who are on top in this life, will find themselves last when Jesus comes again. And many who are last in this life, who've lived their lives at the bottom, will find themselves first when Jesus comes again. Some people may experience a reversal in this life, like Joseph did, and God bless them if they do, but many won't. But the great reversal that Jesus talks about here is a promise for every single follower of Jesus. It's universal. And I think the lessons that we learn from Joseph's story are just as relevant about this great reversal. And so let's consider four lessons that Joseph learned. Here's the first lesson. Influence is a trust from God. Influence. Our influence in life is a trust from God. You know, before Joseph was sold as a slave, he saw his influence as a right as a privilege that belonged to him. He was his father, Jacob's favorite. He was the son who was lavished with love and attention and privileges that were withheld from his 10 older brothers. But when he was sold as a slave and then later falsely imprisoned, he lost nearly all of that influence. His circle of influence went from being large to being very small. And that's how Joseph learned that whatever influence he had, it didn't belong to him. It was a trust from God. Not a right to be claimed, not an entitled privilege, 
but a trust for him to manage as a steward. To follow Jesus as his disciple in this life means that we begin to see everything in our lives through the lens of trust and stewardship. God has entrusted all to me for me to steward faithfully back to him. If Jesus is our Lord, which is what we proclaim at our baptism, that he is our Lord, then Jesus has rightful claim over everything in our lives, our family, our titles, our privileges, our money, our our resources, our gifts, our abilities, our talents, our church, everything that we have that can influence others is a trust from God. You see, by stewardship, I'm not just talking about our giving or our tithing. I'm talking about a whole orientation of our lives that sees everything through the lens of trusted by God to steward for God. And one of the reasons that Jesus says many who are first will be last when Jesus comes again is because often people who have a lot in this life struggle with this idea. The more you have, the more I have, the harder it is to accept this idea that it's all trusted to me by God to be stewarded for his glory. So those who are first, first in income, first in influence, first in reputation, first in opportunities, often have more difficulty living as stewards than those who are last. And so Jesus says, many who are first will be last when Jesus comes again, and many who are last will be first. Because those who do steward what they have as a trust, like Joseph did when his circle was small, and then when his circle was large, will find themselves first when Jesus comes again. Our our influence is a gift. It's a trust from God. It doesn't belong to us. Here's the second lesson. Integrity grows our capacity to influence. Integrity grows our capacity to influence. Joseph grew in his integrity when his circle shrunk and got smaller. When his circle was big in Genesis chapter 37, we don't see a person of integrity in Joseph. We see a naive 17-year-old blind to his own privilege and unaware of how his actions were fueling the hatred of his brothers towards him. It's only after he became a slave in Egypt in Genesis 39 that the Bible says, then the Lord was with him. It says it four times in that chapter for emphasis. Joseph learned to be a person of integrity at the bottom, not at the top. Jesus once said, those who can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. As a Hebrew slave, Joseph learned to be faithful with what little he had, which prepared him to wield influence later. Now, integrity is not perfection. We all sin. We all have regrets. We all do things to hurt other people and to disobey God. I do it. I know you do it too. Integrity comes from confessing our sins before God regularly and freely and openly admitting our faults to other people. 
Integrity comes from cooperating with the, the work of God's spirit, the, the, the work of spiritual transformation so that our habits and our passions and our dispositions and our inclinations are slowly being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here at Glenkirk, we use the word become to talk about this process. We are becoming more fully devoted followers of Jesus. This transformation creates integrity that prepares us to wield influence, whatever influence God trusts us. Well, Joseph learned that lesson. Here's a third lesson. Identity protects us from losing ourselves. Identity protects us from losing ourselves. The Egyptian empire tried its best to erase Joseph's identity. First, Egypt tried to erase his identity by making him a nameless, faceless, foreign slave with no voice, no rights. But then here in Genesis 41, in this great reversal, Egypt immerses Joseph in an Egyptian identity. But neither strategy could erase Joseph's sense of who he was, that he was the son of Jacob, the grandson of Isaac, the great-grandson of Abraham, that he was the recipient of God's covenant promises, a participant in God's plan to bring salvation to the whole world and all the peoples of the world. Egypt's failure to erase Joseph's identity is evident in this chapter when Joseph gives his two sons Hebrew names instead of Egyptian names. Joseph knew who he was. Even as he wore an Egyptian robe and was married to an Egyptian wife who was part of a pagan priestly family and he was riding around in a fancy chariot throughout Egypt, he didn't lose himself. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your identity as a follower of Jesus is the most important thing about you. Being a Christ follower comes before our family, before our racial identity, before our nationality, before our politics, before our church. If you're a Christian, you are a part of God's people adopted into God's family because of the work of Jesus on the cross for you. Don't lose yourself. Those who lose themselves may become first in this life, first because of their family or because of their opportunities or because of, of their, their wealth, but they will be last when Jesus comes again. But those who retain their sense of who they are as a member of the family of God above all else, they will be first. Don't forget who you are. And finally, the fourth lesson we find is that impact is measured in the good done for others. Joseph's impact was measured in the good that was done for others. Joseph's great reversal was not about vindicating Joseph. Joseph's great reversal was about saving the lives of people, keeping people from literally starving to death. And Joseph's great reversal was also about keeping God's plan of salvation moving forward so it could come to you. 
and to me. See, back in Genesis 11, God had promised Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, that God would work through one of Abraham's future descendants to undo the curse of sin that the first man and woman brought into the world and to replace that curse with the blessing of salvation that would be then made available for all the peoples and all the nations of the world. And as Christians, we believe that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 was fulfilled by Jesus. That's what the New Testament claims. Through faith in Jesus and what he did as a descendant of Abraham, anyone can be made right with God and adopted into God's family. Through Jesus, God promises to remake the world when Jesus comes again and to set every wrong right. This famine threatened to derail that plan. Because without Joseph in Egypt during this famine, all of Abraham's descendants would have starved to death in Canaan. And if all of Abraham's descendants starved to death, God's plan would have died with them. God's providence is what led Joseph to his position of authority to ultimately keep the plan of God moving forward so it could come to you and to me and to anyone else who trusts in Jesus. Joseph's impact was not measured in the size of his chariot or in any title that the Pharaoh conferred upon him. It was measured in the good he did for other people. And likewise, our impact in this life will be measured by the good that we do for others. Because many who have a lot in this life hoard it for themselves, keeping it only for themselves. And they will be last when Jesus comes again. But those who use what they have, whether it's a lot or a little, who use what they have for the good of others, their gifts, their talents, their money, their resources, their, their opportunities, their influence, whether it's a lot or a little, they will be first in this future great reversal. We love these stories of great reversals in this life, and I think it's part of American culture to celebrate rags-to-riches stories. We love it when people on the bottom work their way to the top. But today we've seen that there's a future great reversal that is coming for all of God's people, every follower of Jesus. And in this great reversal, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And the lessons that Joseph learned about influence and integrity, identity, and impact are just as relevant for us that our influence is a trust from God and our integrity as it grows helps us wield that influence well. Our identity keeps us from losing our sense of who we are as the people of God and our impact will ultimately be measured in the good done for others. So let me close with the words of a prayer um, attributed to a 15th century Spanish Christian named Ignatius. Let me just read it out loud. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. 
all I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours to do with what you will. Give me only your grace or your love and your grace. That is enough for me. That's the kind of life Joseph lived when he was on the bottom and when he was on the top. May it be the kind of life that we live as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories of Scripture that point us to you, God. Lord, you are the hero in these stories. You are the one that is keeping your plan moving. You are the one who is showing love, preserving your creation, keeping everything from coming apart. We trust in you. And Father, in light of, of the words of Jesus, that many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first, Lord, we aspire to be faithful to you. Help us live this prayer. May your love and your grace be enough for us as we return all that we have to you to be used for your goodness and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.